Hey everyone, welcome to the A to Z of sex, or the A to Z of sex if you're in North America. I'm Dr. Lori Beth Bisbee. I'm a psychologist, sex and intimacy coach, and a gender, sex, and relationship diversity therapist. And I am working my way through the erotic alphabet one letter at a time. I created this podcast to help you learn to express your desires, learn more about desires, spice up your relationships, and create those sizzling relationships that you have always wanted. I do this through solid science, real-life stories, and conversations with an exciting array of experts. Listen in weekly as I share key strategies that will help you choose the relationship style that works best for you and create exactly what you want and need. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss any episodes and you can take advantage of the subscriber bonuses. And if you want to know more, head over to drlauribethbisbee.com and sign up for my email list so that you can find out exactly what is going on in my world from week to week. But for now, come join me and enter my world of sex and relationships. See you inside. Hey everyone, welcome to the A to Z of sex with me, Dr. Lori Beth Bisbee. I am a psychologist and accredited advanced gender, sex, and relationship diversity therapist, a sex and intimacy coach, and I've been working with people for the past 30 plus years to help them create and maintain incredible relationships with sizzling sex and without shame. We are working our way through the erotic alphabet one letter at a time, and this week the letter is Z. And I'm going to be answering a bunch of the questions that have been sitting um, on my desk for a while in this episode. So Z is basically the catch-all at the end of the alphabet. Um, As some of you know, X and Y were questions that I answered while I was away filming the second season of Open House, The Great Sex Experiment. Um, And the next two months are really crazy busy for me. Um, I've got a lot going on, and rather than repost previous episodes, what I've decided to do is work my way through the rather large amount of questions that have been sitting in my inbox, um, waiting to be answered or waiting for the topic to be discussed. Um, So I will have question and answer podcasts peppered in with ones that I have... um, been able to record on the fly or have uh, been able to pre-record. Um, so this week, I'm going to answer some of the questions that have been sitting in my inbox. And the questions are on anything about sex and relationships, the whole gamut. So the first question um, I got asked is, how do I find a good therapist who works with people around sex and relationships? This is a great question. Um, and it does depend somewhat on what you are actually looking to do and who you, what kind of sex and relationships you're wanting to work on. That may sound like a funny thing to say, um, but we all have different specialties. So 
In the United States and in some other countries, if you're looking for a certified sex therapist, you look for an ASECT, that's A-A-S-E-C-T, SECT, um, accredited therapist. Uh, in the United Kingdom, you would be looking for a course accredited therapist. Um, however, if you're looking for somebody who works with gender, sex, and relationship diversity, you would be looking for somebody who um, is a GSRD accredited therapist, if possible. Um, now, there are plenty of people who are not accredited in the specialism, but who do in fact have a specialism. Um, and so just because somebody isn't ASECT accredited or course accredited doesn't make them not be a good sex and relationships therapist. People like me, for example, I'm a psychologist and I got my accreditations in psychology. Um, and then I'm also a coach and I did coach accreditation um, and worked with people for a number of years before I went to apply for the uh, certification for GSRD, Gender, Sex, and Relationship Diversity Therapist that Pink Therapy offers. I've been working with people for a lot of years and had a lot of experience and a lot of training, um, but hadn't only been specializing as a sex therapist. That wasn't my specific training. Therefore, um, didn't get certified specifically as a sex therapist. So this is actually quite a complicated question sometimes. I think it's important to ask people what their certifications are, where they got them, what kind of training was contained in the certification. Um, you need to make sure that um, therapists um, and uh, psychologists are licensed in the area in which they're practicing. And... Um, there is a sheet that I can provide with a list of questions that I suggest people ask a therapist to make the decision whether this is going to be a good therapist for them. And that's important. I am a good therapist for some people, and I would not be a good therapist for other people. I would not be the appropriate therapist. So it's important that you get used to asking questions. If you're somebody who is kinky, um, you can look at the Kink Aware Professionals list, which is done by the National um, Coalition for Sexual Freedom. Um, while it's a U.S.-based list, there are also people on it um, internationally. I'm one of the people that's on it internationally. Um, you can look in the U.K. at the Pink Therapy Directory, which will um, give you information about people who work with gender, with sex, with relationship diversity. Um, so LGBTQ, kink, BDSM, consensual non-monogamy, it's a good directory to look in because these will be people that specialize. But remember that you still have to do your due diligence and make sure that the person you're going to work with is somebody that's appropriately trained and qualified because just being in a directory doesn't mean that that is the case. Although um, directories like the Pink Therapy Directory will not put somebody up as a professional without checking their certificates first. So you know, you can you can rely if it says that somebody is certified in some way or has particular certificates that they've actually seen that before the profile's gone up. Okay, um, next question. I've had a number of questions on acronyms. So um, I just figured I would define the ones I've been asked about recently <laughs> uh, because acronyms are really very, very popular. 
Okay, so let's start with the one I get asked about most, which is BDSM. BDSM stands for Bondage, Discipline, Dominant Submission, Sadomasochism. Um, so you are looking at any or all of those things when somebody's talking about BDSM. Uh, the dominant submission are the ones that talk about the dynamics or the authority transfer or the power exchange. Bondage and discipline are two of the fun activities people get up to. And sadomasochism, well, those can include activities or they can be labels by which a person is known. Sadist is a person who enjoys meeting out pain and a masochist is a person who enjoys receiving some types of pain. Um, okay, now the next one that I've been asked about a lot is uh, what do people mean when they say FFM and MMF? Um, and these acronyms relate to threesomes. And an FFM... Threesome is two females and a male, and an MMF threesome is two males and a female. Next one, uh, what is a CNM or ENM? Uh, this stands for consensual non-monogamy or ethical non-monogamy, and depending on where in the world you are is which term is preferred, or also depending on what community you're in is which term is preferred, but they're both talking about the same thing. They're both talking about people who have multiple relationships at the same time with the knowledge and consent of everyone. Um, so this is as opposed to when people cheat where they are having multiple relationships behind the back of at least one, if not more than one person. Okay, the next few acronyms have to do with... Um, BDSM and kink, um, SSC is safe, sane, and consensual, um, which is the way that most people talked about kink for a long time. Um, but because some of the practices that people engage in um, are just definitely not safe, and they're not going to be safe no matter what we do, it became risk-aware consensual kink, or RAC, um, to highlight the fact that um, actually what we're doing isn't necessarily safe. Um, there are others who prefer personal responsibility informed consensual kink, where they are talking about the importance of each person having a responsibility of their, to themselves to be aware of the risk in anything that they're going to do. And I guess the move from rack to prick was about making sure that people were really taking responsibility for themselves in understanding fully the risk of any activity that they were entering into. Um, the activity I like to talk about most in terms of these acronyms is to talk about choking, which obviously um, has become, in my opinion, overpopularized. You see it everywhere. Um, as something that people do who actually aren't really involved in BDSM and kink, but it's just something they do when they're going to have rough sex or um, a little bit of dominance in their sex. Um, and choking is never safe. Um, choking is fact was probably one of the most dangerous activities you can get up to. Um, I mean, people will say, oh, well, that's obvious, but it's not for the obvious reasons. It is because that people... Their accidents can happen in very unpredictable ways because people can have very unpredictable responses to um, various blood vessels in their neck being compressed um, that can mean a quick death can happen in a situation where one wouldn't have thought um, that the pressure was enough to kill someone. So where one thought what they were doing was something that was light, but actually um, 
because of this person's physiology, which you can't know about in advance, it was enough to kill them. So um, safe, sane, and consensual clearly doesn't apply for something like choking. And risk-aware, while it might apply, to me doesn't really say enough. Personal responsibility is much more um, accurate as far as I'm concerned, that for each person wanting to engage in this activity, that they actually do research themselves before they engage in the activity. Um, Okay, and the final um, acronym that I was asked about is consensual non-consent, which is situations in which a person negotiates a scene in advance um, where they are going to give their partner far more latitude during the scene. These scenes often involve rape reenactments or um, fantasy rapes um, or um, kidnapping and interrogation scenes. They're really intense and can be highly violent. And so they're negotiated in, a, in, in depth in advance, as all scenes are, where the person is saying, no matter what I say in this scene, don't end the scene. Um, there's still a safe word in most of these scenes. There's still a way to know that you want the scene to stop. But most of the ordinary things that people would think are off limits or would be cause for somebody to suggest, uh, do we need to slow down? Do I need to check in with you? Are not done because it takes away from the reality of the scene. There are also relationships in which consensual non-consent is a feature. These are relationships where um, it's negotiated that there are no limits, that the dominant person um, has the right to do anything that they like, um, and the submissive person is given that right. Um, a lot is made of this. Um, you know, people get up in arms. They're like, "What if your partner wanted to cut off your limb? Would you do that?" Uh, the uh, safety is in the partner choosing in these situations, not in any kind of particular um, negotiation. The fact is, um, if you choose a partner that is dangerous and is going to want to do something that will end your life or permanently disfigure you, whether or not you've negotiated consensual non-consent won't matter. Uh, They will find a way to do what they want to do. But um, for people who want to be in a relationship in which continuous ongoing consent for every activity is not the way the relationship is run. Consensual non-consent can be negotiated within the relationship, but usually it is something that you want to do only if you're very experienced, um, only if you know the person unbelievably well that you're entering into this, um, and needs to be done with extreme caution. Uh, This can actually take a whole episode, so I have not done this justice, I'm only defined the acronym and giving you a little bit more, um, but look for a full episode on consensual non-consent coming up in the future. Okay, next question. How do I know what title to use when addressing someone in an event or online if it's a kink or leather event? If you don't know somebody, you address them with their name, period. If you don't know somebody and you're interacting with them, you address them with their name. Online, I see a lot of times where um, somebody will make some spicy contact and suddenly the whole comment section is filled with, oh, yes, daddy, yes, sir, and all this sort of stuff, completely unsolicited. 
the person who made the content. Occasionally you see it with um, feminine presenting people and you get yes ma'am. And, but I, m- most of the time tend to see it with masculine presenting people where the, the comment section is filled with people referring to the person as sir, daddy, whatever. Um, the etiquette is that you do not use a title with somebody unless you know them and have permission to do so. And that you do not make assumptions. Even if you know a person, you cannot assume that it's acceptable to use their title in any particular situation. Sometimes at leather events, people will go around and use titles without even thinking about it. They'll refer to everyone as sir or ma'am or some variation, whatever the titles that they prefer to use. Um, Again, without asking, and it's still really inappropriate. Just because somebody is a submissive or a slave does not mean that they need to address everybody with a title. They address the people they know and respect with a title. A title confers respect. It goes with respect. So you use titles when you know someone and you respect them. If you don't know them, you use their name. Unless your person, master, mistress, dominant top, maestro, you know, whatever they, whatever they are, your, your dominant person gives you a protocol and you follow that protocol. But I would say that if your protocol is to address everyone with a title, you run the risk of really annoying and insulting people. I remember being in an event where somebody's protocol was that every um, woman that she came into contact with was ma'am and every man that she, man that she came into contact with was sir. And she kept referring to me as ma'am. Now, I am not a dominant. I don't respond well to ma'am as a title. It's not a title I claim. I don't like it. And in fact, the only time I'm actually okay with ma'am, well, of course, you know, I can be out in public and I'm now of an age where people will not call me miss anymore. They will definitely call me ma'am. And so if I'm out in public and you know, somebody is opening a door for me or somebody's serving me in a shop and calls me ma'am, of course, I'm not going to be offended by that. Um, but in the leather community, I am an elder now, which I'm still trying to get used to, by the way. Um, but I'm an elder now. And so if if some um, uh, more youthful members of the community refer to me as ma'am as a sign of respect for my knowledge and my years of experience, I'm okay with that too. But I'm just not okay with random ma'ams because that's your protocol, because that's not a title I claim. So it makes me very uncomfortable. I also feel that when you're using a title in this community, you're actually, um, it's actually quite um, an intimate thing. It implies more intimacy in some ways um, than I think it does in the outside world, which means, I mean, it's a generic turn in the outside world, whereas I feel that um, in the leather community, it actually is implying more knowledge of a person and therefore more intimacy. So if you don't know me and you refer to me by a title or you refer to my husband with a title, you refer to him as sir when you don't know him, I find that really uncomfortable and so does he. It's something you do when you know someone. Now, you can, may only know them casually, 
and it and, and within the context of your community if you know them casually it may still be appropriate to use their title if they're teaching it may be appropriate to use their title for example but online like on facebook on tiktok um on instagram unless you know somebody and they've said it's okay do not use any title now if you know somebody um and you want to know what title to use to address them or if you should use a title, the best thing you can do is ask. Don't make assumptions. When I um, see somebody where I don't know what I'm supposed to do, with family, I know exactly what I'm supposed to do in what circumstances. But let's say I see somebody where I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do, um, and I do know them, I might say, how would you like me to address you? When I meet somebody, I say, how would you like me to address you? It's what people do with me. I mean, when people meet me, um, when I'm interviewed on podcasts or by reporters, they say, how do you want to be referred to? Are you Dr. Lori? Are you Dr. Lori Beth? Are you Dr. Bisbee? Are you Lori? Are you Lori Beth? And I will tell them in the context of that situation how I am happy to be referred to. That doesn't transfer to every other situation in which they see me. So you need to make sure that you ask. Another great question, what is the etiquette when you're approaching someone who is in a relationship with someone else? And this was asked by a person who is um, entering non-monogamy and just doesn't know what to do. Well, I'm going to tell you that the etiquette is different in different circles. Um, so it's really important that you ask what the rules are. Um Certainly, in a leather house situation, if you want to approach, depends on what you're approaching for. Like in one of my family's leather houses, you can approach the submissive directly because the submissive, or rather the slave, is quite capable of saying uh, no or go and speak to my master. In my house, though I am quite capable of saying no or go and go and speak to my master, his preference is you approach them, right? His preference is you approach him, not me. Um, and I, and I, the person who asked this question was talking about approaching someone to date. So um, out and about in the leather community, if somebody wanted to date me, they would approach him. Also, if they wanted to date him, they would approach me. As a sign of respect, they would connect with me. I wouldn't be saying yay or nay necessarily, but it is a sign of respect. And actually, if I reacted badly to somebody, he wouldn't date them. Um, if you are in other non-monogamous communities and situations, it may not be something where you need to approach the part, the other partner at the same time or first. However, in some communities, it's just polite to acknowledge the other partner. So if you're approaching somebody who is married to ask your partner, your, your new partner, the person you're approaching or the person you're just about to date, is it appropriate for me to contact your husband, your wife, your partner and say hello? What's most important, whether you're approaching the other person or not, is that you show respect for the relationship that already exists. That's pretty universal. 
You may never need to meet the person. You may never need to have any relationship with the person's other person, with your, with, with your metamor. Your metamor is your partner's other partner. But if you don't show respect to that relationship and the fact that that relationship has been there before you, it usually doesn't turn out well. Now, this is con- kind of a controversial point because there are a lot of people who will talk about, you know, that's hierarchy and we don't do hierarchy in our relationships and and we don't like hierarchy and hierarchy is not okay. But the fact of the matter is most of us practice an inherent sort of hierarchy, whether we are aware of it or not, unless we spend all our time being scrupulous about trying to make sure that everybody gets the same as everyone else, which I can tell you as a therapist does not work. Everybody doesn't want the same of everything as everyone else in the first place. Um, So it then becomes very hard to divide things up. So There is an inherent hierarchy that comes with what we call sweat equity. And sweat equity is the time and energy that you have put into a relationship with somebody over a period of time. Um, It includes going through the hard stuff, you know, seeing somebody grow, seeing somebody when they're ill, um, having a home together, going through job changes. So just like you build equity in a house as you pay down your mortgage, it's the same thing. There's equity in this relationship. And so to not show some form of respect for the fact that that relationship has been there and that this person has been in a committed relationship with this other person for X period of time um, usually doesn't go well. Usually doesn't go well. So when people get entitled and demanding, that's when that becomes a real problem situation. So... This is really kind of common etiquette in my book. Like if you were at a party and you were interested in talking to one person in the couple about a hobby they had or that you share or a job thing that you share, you would still be polite to the other partner before you took the person away and tried to have a private conversation. You wouldn't be rude and not say hello. So I'm not sure why people think that it's appropriate to not say hello or to not be polite um, in non-monogamous situations. But it it is appropriate to be polite and to acknowledge the other person and to acknowledge, in a sense, their primacy, even though even in situations where you're going to have egalitarian relationships, you still acknowledge the primacy of the other relationship. Um, Things go better when you do that. Okay. So this question is an interesting one. Person said, I got given a hard time because my partner was walking me around on a lead near a local club. Can you talk about consent when being in public, please? So we've, you know, over the last sort of 15 years, we've talked a lot more about this and thought a lot more about this. Um, I'd say um, in the last 10 years, it has become much more frowned upon to engage in any kind of behavior that has a sexual aspect that might be obvious in public because you cannot get the the consent of the people that are around you in public unless you're in a club or where a, a dedicated place for that kind of play. Um, and 
And this has probably come about because of people's better understanding of why consent is so important um, and, and really how consent works. So this means that, you know, walking around on a lead out in a, in a public street, while some people might find it amusing, other people might find it uncomfortable, and therefore this becomes an issue. Now, where this becomes a real problem, a lot of the times when people are talking about pride and parades and things, um, and my response to that is, is if you go down to an area where pride is happening and the parade is happening, then you know a, sen- a consent is assumed because you've come to the space. It's just like if you go to a club um, where um, a variety of activities are allowed, you can't complain you didn't consent to see XYZ activity if it's an activity that's allowed in the club and you came to the club. So we need to be, we need to take responsibility. If I don't want to see, a, for example, if you don't want to see a man masturbating in front of you, then don't go to a club where that's allowed. You can't complain that this man was masturbating as long as they're not in your physical space without consent, but that this man was standing off to the side masturbating and you didn't really want to see that if you know that that's something that the club allows and you've gone to the club. But if it's something the club doesn't allow and somebody's sneaking it or doing it, then yeah, you would complain. You didn't have my consent to do that. So it's an interesting one as well because um, we could move this into the domain of public displays of affection. That people routinely make public displays of affection um, and they don't have the consent of anyone else who's around them to do so. So we ask, in recent years, people are asked to think twice about the way that they make a public display of affection. So holding hands in public is one thing, but having a makeout session in public maybe is not so acceptable anymore because you're not getting consent of the people around you. And it's because they can't avoid you doing this if you're doing this in a public free space, right? If you're doing whatever you're doing that's sexualized in a public free space and people can't avoid seeing it, then can't avoid being there and can't avoid seeing it, then you, you would be violating their consent. So it's frowned upon. Now, some people have protocols that they enact when they're in restaurants and things like this, and they're usually subtle things so that other people wouldn't necessarily know that this was sexual or sexualized for the couple. Um, they wouldn't really know what was going on, but it wouldn't be something that they that would draw attention. For example, there are a lot of um, people um, who are slaves or submissives who don't eat until their master mistress eats a first bite of a meal. Well, if anybody notices that, what are they going to say about it, right? There are a lot of people who serve their partners. Well, there are a lot of people who do that in vanilla marriages as well. So again, it's not something that is sexual in public. But if you were crawling on the floor, if you were getting down on your knees and offering up a glass or a plate to your partner, well, that would be something you would need consent for in public. Next question. What do I do if my young child asks about my other partners or my same-sex partner? And the person asking this was saying the ch- a child, you know, up to sort of the age of five or six. 
So I answer the same thing for your child asking about sex or anything like that. Answer the question your child asked in age-appropriate terms and don't give them any extra information. They don't need it, nor do they want it. Um, and the example of this for me is that my son was about three, three and a half, um, perhaps four, but no more than four, and asked me if my brother and his partner, because my brother's gay, came up and he said, are David and Gary like you and daddy? Do they love each other? Now, some parents might have been inclined to say a whole lot of stuff, but all he wanted to know was yes or no. So I said, yes, they are, and he was happy, and that was the end of that. What he wanted to understand is where they fit into his world. Children look for safety and security, and something that they really don't understand can make them feel a little bit anxious. So having a place to put it makes them feel anxious, less anxious, takes away the anxiety, and that's all he wanted to know. He didn't need to know this is called being gay. He didn't need to know anything. All he needed to know was the answer to his question. It's really important when they're young to answer their questions in age-appropriate language and not to give them a bunch of superfluous information. When they're ready for more information, they'll let you know. And then you can give them more information, and again, in an age-appropriate fashion. So if you're non-monogamous, it might look different in different ways. My son would ask if somebody was um, family. That's how he figured out who was important and who was going to be around and who might not be around, so he didn't want to get too too close to or too bonded to. Is so-and-so family. Now, that could have referred to my deep, deep close friends, right? And did as well. So we weren't making a distinction between sexual partners or friends. It was the people who were important in my life, who were going to be in his life, were family. And that was all he understood until he was older. And until the first time he was on a trip where he realized that I was sharing a bed with one of these people. He still just asked, is this family? And that was it. And he didn't ask about sex or any of those things. He didn't care. He just cared that these two people love him and will cuddle him, right? That was all he wanted to know. We didn't explain this. We didn't talk about non-monogamy in any detail until he was much older when it was time because he had a whole bunch of questions then. Okay, um, so I've got time for a couple more questions. Is aftercare mandatory and what makes good aftercare? Uh, there's a lot of argument about this in the kink and BDSM community. There are some people, you'll see lots of things on social media where if they don't offer aftercare, they're abusive. If they don't do this, that, and the other, they're abusive. Um, that's bullshit. Aftercare is not mandatory but aftercare is negotiated. Aftercare, if you, if you want aftercare, it is something you should be bringing up with the person you're doing the scene with prior to the scene, finding out if they are willing to do the things you need for aftercare, negotiating that with them, and if they are not, 
either negotiating getting those needs met by somebody else or decide not to play with them. Yes, you are responsible for your own aftercare, even if someone else is providing it. Aftercare is something that people can decide not to do if they're uncomfortable, because just like the bottoms, a top can withdraw their consent at any time. I'm going to say that again. A top can also withdraw their consent at any time. Anyone can withdraw their consent at any time in any scene, and that includes during the aftercare if they're uncomfortable. Some of the reasons that tops withdraw from from agreed-upon aftercare, they've been triggered in the scene and they need support themselves right then. Don't forget that tops also require aftercare and will negotiate that with the bottoms or with other people when they're negotiating the scene. Really important to remember that everybody can have a need for aftercare after a BDSM scene. Typical types of aftercare include uh, a little bit of food, a lot of hydration, some cuddles, sometimes talking through a situation, sometimes being in a dark space and just held. Um, Some people um, will consider sexual activities aftercare. Other people consider that part of the scene. Um, Some people want a certain amount of phone calls. You know, there's all sorts of stuff that people like for aftercare. Aftercare is designed to help the person come back into the here and now, non-play world, um, and minimize things like drop, um, which is that plummet from being really high in the scene to back coming back down to reality, um, and um, provide reassurance um, and security. And sometimes aftercare, particularly in scenes that involve humiliation and degradation, is about making sure that the other person knows that the stuff in scene doesn't extend it to outside of scene, right? Because those scenes can be really pretty tough. And for tops, when they do scenes like that, where they're being really cruel, and they've been asked to be cruel, and they've agreed being cruel, aftercare can be can involve making sure that the person they were being cruel to is letting them know that they love them and they can see them and they know they're not that mean, cruel person that they were in the scene, that they know that that was for fun and for play, but that in reality, you know, they don't look at people that way. They don't treat people that way. So it's not mandatory. I advise people to consider aftercare because lots of people need aftercare. There are some people who just don't. Some people don't because they don't. They're very good at at taking care of themselves um, and that's what they want to do. Other people don't need it because they don't go very deep. Other people don't need it because they switch states very easily. Um, But Many people need aftercare in order to make it um, a good experience all around. And um, so planning for that is important. And sometimes you may think you're not going to need aftercare because you planned a light scene and lo and behold, you end up in a different place because the scene went somewhere else. 
something got triggered off and you do need aftercare. So having a plan is, is, is a great idea before the scene. It makes it more likely um, that you are going to be able to have um, an overall positive experience and think back on it as something really fondly and perhaps want to do it again and perhaps want to do it again with that person. But we are all responsible adults, which means we have to negotiate these things. So if you're new and you're not sure what you need, you need to be saying that to whoever you're planning on playing with. And if they're dismissive um, and they're not taking extra care with you, don't play with them. If you're new, let somebody know you're new. Let somebody know that you're not really sure what you need for aftercare, but these are the things you've heard about. Um and if, again, if they're dismissive, if they're not taking note of the fact that you're new and making sure that you're safe, then don't play with them. Remember that we all have responsibility for ourselves first and foremost. And we can't push that responsibility off on the other person. And unfortunately, I see all too often um, when these things go wrong is the responsibilities being pushed off on somebody else. It can either be the tops pushing the responsibility on to the bottom um, by refusing to even negotiate about it, or the bottoms pushing the responsibility onto the top because they're saying that it's the top's job to provide aftercare. It isn't anybody's job to do anything. We all negotiate every aspect of a scene. Nobody has the responsibility of doing anything without negotiation and consent. And consent is always enthusiastic and ongoing. Okay, um, are ceramic toys safe to play with? And there are some really amazing ceramic toys out there. Um, you need to check the porosity of the toy. Yes, they're safe to play with, um, most, but they're safest with condoms. Um, and glass toys, depending on how they're made, and you, you need to check if they're not porous, then not having a condom, if you're not sharing the toy with somebody else, is okay. You have to make sure to clean your toys really well. As If they're porous toys, you run the risk of bacteria getting caught in the toy, basically. Um, and then you ending up with infections because of that. So A, you always clean your toys well. B, check whether the toy is porous or not, and if it is, consider using a condom because that will prevent um, bacteria from hanging around because you strip the condom off and you get rid of it. You still clean the toy afterwards, but you strip the condom off and you get rid of it. Um, what's the difference between silicone and bo body-safe medical-grade silicone? Well, body-safe medical-grade silicone is what we say. It is body-safe and medical-grade. It is made um, to be used... Um, on instruments that are going to interact with the human body and penetrate and go into the human body in various ways. Um, and that's the kind of toy you want. You do not want something that's just labeled silicon. You want to see that it is body safe, medical grade silicon. If you're going to buy it and have it as a toy. Um, sometimes that is more expensive. Yes, that can be more expensive. Invest in more expensive more expensive, you're less likely to have a reaction to. More expensive, you're less likely to have be something that's going to um, disintegrate um, as easily. Um, more expensive in that situation means it's something that you are 
um, less likely to um, have harboring infection. Now, I don't mean most expensive. There are some very, very expensive toys, and there are some relatively inexpensive or average-priced body-safe medical-grade silicon toys. Just do not be... um, do not be coerced into purchasing really cheap silicon toys that don't clearly state that they're body safe and medical grade. Okay. That seems to be what I have got time for today. Um, if you've got questions or topics you want me to cover uh, or people you'd like to hear from, you'd like to hear me interview, please, please, Email me at lauribeth at drlauribethbisbee.com and I will take it into account. At some point, I will get around to everything that some that people have sent in. It can just take me some time, but I don't get rid of any of the questions or any of the suggestions that people send me. If you like this show, please do a couple of things. One is pass it on to others. Two is please, please, please review the show. Reviews are important, and I know people often don't do reviews because they don't like to spend the time or they're listening at a time where they can't really go and do a review like people listen when they're driving or they listen when they're on a train or they find it difficult to go and do a review. Or if they're afraid of seeing their name associated with a review on a sex podcast, you know you can review anonymously. I like to offer incentive for reviews, so every month I do a draw for 30 minutes free with me. These days you can't get that in any other way other than being part of one of my review draws or at an event where I'm offering um, a raffle of the time. So if you do a review anywhere, Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Podcasts, or if you review one of my books, um on Apple or anywhere where you found found the book, please do send me an email at lauribeth at drlauribethbisbee.com with your, where the review is so I can go see the review. And then I will have your email address, which you will go into the draw for the 30 minutes. If you win the 30 minutes, I will send you a link with a coupon code so that you can go and book the time. I do this once a month. So do get your reviews in. Uh, Each review is only entered once. Thank you, and I appreciate you doing that, and I appreciate you listening. Next week, we start over again with the letter A. I wish you all a great week. Be safe and have fun. Thanks for tuning in. You were just listening to the A to Z of sex, or the A to Z of sex if you're in North America. If you enjoyed the show, please do leave a review wherever it was you listened to it, but especially head over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Reviews really help the show get out there. If you want to support my work, you can support it through my Patreon page. That's Dr. Lori Beth Bisbee on Patreon.com. You can also head over to DrLoriBethBisbee.com and subscribe to my free mailing list which will keep you updated as to the activities I am getting up to and any special appearances. For people who subscribe to the Patreon, there are special broadcasts, merch, 
um, and the opportunity to get discounted tickets to a lot of the events that I do. Knowledge gives you power. The more you know, the better your relationships, the better your satisfaction and joy. If you've got suggestions for the show, comments or questions, do email at lauribeth at drlauribethbisbee.com and I will try and incorporate them. Have a wonderful week filled with loads of joy. 